Chapter Thirty Six of Sylvia's Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sylvia's Lovers by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter Thirty Six: Mysterious Tidings. That very evening, Kester came, humbly knocking at the kitchen door. Phoebe opened it. He asked to see Sylvia. I know not if she'll see thee, said Phoebe. There's no making her out. Sometimes she's for one thing, sometimes she's for another. She bid me come and see her, said Kester, only this morning at Mrs. Berrien. She told me to come. So Phoebe went off to inform Sylvia that Kester was there, and returned with the desire that he would walk into the parlor. An instant after he was gone, Phoebe heard him return and carefully shut the two doors of communication between the kitchen and sitting-room. Sylvia was in the latter, when Kester came in, holding her baby close to her. Indeed, she seldom let it go nowadays to anyone else, making Nancy's place quite a sinecure, much to Phoebe's indignation. Sylvia's face was shrunk and white and thin. Her lovely eyes alone retained the youthful, almost childlike expression. She went up to Kester and shook his horny hand she herself trembling all over don't talk to me of her she said hastily i cannot stand it it's a blessing for her to be gone but oh she began to cry and then cheered herself up and swallowed down her sobs kester she went on hastily charlie kinraid isn't dead dost her know he's alive and he were here a tuesday no monday was it i cannot tell but he were here i knowed as he weren't dead Every one is a-speaking on it, but I didn't know as thee'd ha' seen him. I took comfort in thinking as thou ha' been with a mother at a time as he were into place. Then he's gone, said Sylvia. Gone. Aye, days past. As far as I know, he but stopped a neat. I thought to myself, but you may be sure I said not to nobody. He's heerd as our Sylvia were married, and has put it in his pipe, and ta'en himself off to smoke it. Kester said Sylvia, leaning forwards and whispering, I saw him. He was here. Philip saw him. Philip had known as he wasn't dead all this time. Kester stood up suddenly. By gum, that chap has a deal to answer for. A bright red spot was on each of Sylvia's white cheeks, and for a minute or so neither of them spoke. Then she went on, still whispering out her words. Kester, I'm more afeard than I dare tell anyone. Can they have met, think you? "'To very thought turns me sick. "'I told Philip my mind and took a vow again him. "'But it would be awful to think on harm happening to him through Kinraid. "'Yet he went out that morning, and has never been seen or heard on sin, "'and Kinraid would just fell again him. "'And as for that matter, so was I, but—' "'The red spot vanished as she faced her own imagination. "'Kester spoke. "'It's a thing as can be easily looked into. "'What day and time were it when Philip left this house?' "'Tuesday, the day she died, I saw him in her room that morning between breakfast and dinner. I could almost swear it to its being close after eleven. I mind counting the clock. It was on that very morning as Kinraid were here. "'I'll go and have a pint of beer at the King's Arms down on the quayside. It were there he put up at, and I'm pretty sure as he only stopped one night and left into morning betimes. But I'll go see.' "'Do,' said Sylvia, "'and go out through to shop.' They're all watching and watching me to see how I take things, and I daren't let on about a fire as is burning up my heart. 
Coulson is into shop, but he'll not notice thee like Phoebe. By and by Kester came back. It seemed as though Sylvia had never stirred. She looked eagerly at him, but did not speak. He went away a Rob Mason's mail cart, him as takes to letters to Hartlepool. To Lieutenant, as they call him down at the King's Arms, they're as proud of his uniform as if it had been a new painted sign to swing o'er their doors. To Lieutenant had reckoned upon staying longer wi' him, but he went out betimes a Tuesday morn and came back all ruffled up and paid his bill, paid for his breakfast, though he touched none on it, and went off i' Rob Postman's mail cart as starts regular at ten o'clock. Cornies had been there asking for him and making a piece o' work, as he never went near em, and they be's cousins. Never a one among em knows as he were here as far as I could make out. Thank you, Kester, said Sylvia, falling back into her chair, as if all the energy that had kept her stiff and upright was gone, now that her anxiety was relieved. She was silent for a long time. Her eyes shut, her cheek laid on her child's head. Kester spoke next. I think it's pretty clear as they never met. But it's all to more wonder where thy husband's gone to. The in him had words about it, and thou telled him thy mind, thou said. Yes, said Sylvia, not moving. I'm afeard lest mother knows what I said to him. There, where she's gone to. I am. The tears filled her shut eyes, and came softly overflowing down her cheeks. And yet it were true what I said. I cannot forgive him. He's just spoiled my life. And I'm not one in twenty yet. And he knowed how wretched, how very wretched I were. A word for him would have mended it. Ah, and Charlie had bid him speak the word, and give me his faithful love, and Philip saw my heart ache day after day, and never let on, as him I was mourning for was alive, and had sent me word as he'd keep true to me, as I were doing to him. I wish I'd been there. I'd have felled him to the ground, said Kester, clenching his stiff, hard hand with indignation. Sylvia was silent again. Pale and weary, she sate her eyes still shut. Then she said, Yet he were so good to mother, and mother loved him so. Oh, Kester, lifting herself up, opening her great wistful eyes, it's well for folks as can die. They're spared a deal of misery. Aye, said he, but there's folks as one would like to keep fra shirking their misery. Think you now as Philip is living? Sylvia shivered all over and hesitated before she replied. I do not know. I said such things. He deserved em all. Well, well, lass, said Kester, sorry that he had asked the question which was producing so much emotion of one kind or another. Neither thee nor me can tell. We can neither help nor hinder, seeing as he's taying hisself off out of our sight. We'd best not think on him. I'll try and tell thee some news, if I can think on it with my mind so full. Thou knows Hater's Bank folk have flitted. And t'owd place is empty. Yes, said Sylvia, with the indifference of one wearied out with feeling. I only telled ye to count like for me being at loose end in Monkshaven. My sister, her as lived at Dale End and is a widow, has comed into town to live, and I'm lodging wi' her and jobbing about. I'm getting pretty well to do, and I'm known far to seek, and I'm going now. Only first I just wanted for to say, as I'm thy oldest friend, I reckon, and if I can do a turn for thee, or go an errand, like as I've done to-day, or if it's any comfort to talk a bit to one who's known thy life from a babby, why you've only to send for me, and I'd come if it were twenty mile. I'm lodging at Peggy Dawson's, to Lath and Plaster College at the right hand of Tribridge, ah, among to new houses, as they're thinking of building near to sea. No one can miss it. 
He stood up and shook hands with her. As he did so, he looked at her sleeping baby. She's liker you than him. I think I'll say, God bless her. With the heavy sound of his outgoing footsteps, baby awoke. She ought before this time to have been asleep in her bed, and the disturbance made her cry fretfully. Hush thee, darling, hush thee, murmured her mother. There's no one left to love me but thee, and I cannot stand thy weeping, my pretty one. Hush thee, my babe, hush thee. She whispered soft in the little one's ear as she took her upstairs to bed. About three weeks after the miserable date of Bell Robson's death and Philip's disappearance, Hester Rose received a letter from him. She knew the writing on the address well, and it made her tremble so much that it was many minutes before she dared to open it and make herself acquainted with the facts it might disclose. But she need not have feared. There were no facts told, unless the vague date of London might be something to learn. Even that much might have been found out by the postmark. Only she had been too much taken by surprise to examine it. It ran as follows. Dear Hester, tell those to whom it may concern that I have left Monkshaven forever. No one need trouble themselves about me. I am provided for. Please to make my humble apologies to my kind friends, the Misters Foster, and to my partner William Colson. Please to accept of my love, and to join the same to your mother. Please give my particular and respectful duty and kind love to my Aunt Isabella Robson. Her daughter Sylvia knows what I have always felt, and shall always feel, for her better than I can ever put into language. So I send her no message. God bless and keep my child. You must all look on me as one dead, as I am to you, and maybe shall soon be in reality. Your affectionate and obedient friend to command, Philip Hepburn. P.S. Oh, Hester, for God's sake and mine. Look after, my wife scratched out, Sylvia and my child. I think Jeremiah Foster will help you to be a friend to them. This is the last solemn request of P.H. She is but very young. Hester read this letter again and again, till her heart caught the echo of its hopelessness and sank within her. She put it in her pocket and reflected upon it all the day long as she served in the shop. The customers found her as gentle but far more inattentive than usual. She thought that in the evening she would go across the bridge and consult with the two good old brothers Foster, but something occurred to put off the fulfillment of this plan. That same morning Sylvia had preceded her, with no one to consult, because consultation would have required previous confidence, and confidence would have necessitated such a confession about Kinraid as it was most difficult for Sylvia to make. The poor young wife yet felt that some step must be taken by her, and what it was to be she could not imagine. She had no home to go to, for as Philip was gone away, she remained where she was only on sufferance. She did not know what means of livelihood she had. She was willing to work, nay, would be thankful to take up her old life of country labor, but with her baby, what could she do? In this dilemma, the recollection of the old man's kindly speech and offer of assistance, made, it is true, half in joke, at the end of her wedding visit, came into her mind and she resolved to go and ask for some of the friendly counsel and assistance then offered. It would be the first time of her going out since her mother's funeral, and she dreaded the effort on that account. More even than on that account did she shrink from going into the streets again. She could not get over the impression that Kinraid must be lingering near, and she distrusted herself so much that it was a positive terror to think of meeting him again. She felt as though, if she but caught a sight of him, the glitter of his uniform, or heard his well-known voice in only a distant syllable of talk, her heart would stop, 
and she should die from very fright of what would come next. Or rather, so she felt, and so she thought, before she took her baby in her arms, as Nancy gave it to her after putting on its out-of-door attire. With it in her arms she was protected, and the whole current of her thoughts was changed. The infant was wailing and suffering with its teething, and the mother's heart was so occupied in soothing and consoling her moaning child that the dangerous quayside and the bridge were passed almost before she was aware. Nor did she notice the eager curiosity and respectful attention of those she met, who recognized her even through the heavy veil, which formed part of the draping mourning provided for her by Hester and Coulson, in the first unconscious days after her mother's death. Though public opinion as yet reserved its verdict upon Philip's disappearance, warned possibly by Kinraid's story against hasty decisions and judgments in such times as those of war and general disturbance, yet every one agreed that no more pitiful fate could have befallen Philip's wife. Marked out by her striking beauty as an object of admiring interest, even in those days when she sate in girlhood's smiling peace by her mother at the market cross, her father had lost his life in a popular cause, and ignominious as the manner of his death might be, he was looked upon as a martyr to his zeal in avenging the wrongs of his townsmen. Sylvia had married amongst them, too, and her quiet daily life was well known to them, and now her husband had been carried off from her side just on the very day when she needed his comfort most. For the general opinion was that Philip had been carried off. In seaport towns such occurrences were not uncommon in those days, either by land crimps or water crimps. So Sylvia was treated with silent reverence, as one sorely afflicted, by all the unheeded people she met in her faltering walk to Jeremiah Foster's. She had calculated her time so as to fall in with him at his dinner hour, even though it obliged her to go to his own house, rather than to the bank, where he and his brother spent all the business hours of the day. Sylvia was so nearly exhausted by the length of her walk and the weight of her baby, that all she could do when the door was opened was to totter into the nearest seat, sit down, and begin to cry. In an instant kind hands were about her, loosening her heavy cloak, offering to relieve her of her child, who clung to her all the more firmly, and someone was pressing a glass of wine against her lips. "'No, sir, I cannot take it. Wine always gives me the headache. If I might have just a drink of water. Thank you, ma'am,' to the respectable-looking old servant. "'I'm well enough now, and perhaps, sir, I might speak a word with you, for it's that I've come for.' "'It's a pity, Sylvia Hepburn, as thee didst not come to me at the bank, for it's been a long toil for thee all this way in the heat with thy child. But if there's aught I can do or say for thee, thou hast but to name it, I am sure.' "'Martha, wilt thou relieve her of her child while she comes with me into the parlour?' But the wilful little Bella stoutly refused to go to any one, and Sylvia was not willing to part with her, tired though she was. So the baby was carried into the parlour, and much of her after-life depended on this trivial fact. Once installed in the easy-chair, and face to face with Jeremiah, Sylvia did not know how to begin. Jeremiah saw this, and kindly gave her time to recover herself by pulling out his great gold watch, and letting the seal dangle before the child's eyes, almost within reach of the child's eager little fingers. "'She favours you a deal,' said he at last. "'More than her father,' he went on, purposely introducing Philip's name so as to break the ice, for he rightly conjectured she had come to speak to him about something connected with her husband. Still Sylvia said nothing. She was choking down tears and shyness, and unwillingness to take as confidant, 
a man of whom she knew so little, on such slight ground, as she now felt it to be, as the little kindly speech with which she had been dismissed from that house the last time she had entered it. "'It's no use keeping you, sir,' she broke out at last. "'It's about Philip as I come to speak. Do you know anything whatsoever about him? He never had a chance of saying anything. I know, but maybe he's written.' "'Not a line, my poor young woman,' said Jeremiah, hastily putting an end to that vain idea. "'Then he's either dead or gone away for ever,' she whispered. "'I mun be both father and mother to my child.' "'Oh, thee must not give it up,' replied he. "'Many a one is carried off to the wars or to the tenders o' men o' war, "'and they turn out to be unfit for service, and are sent home. "'Philip'll come back before the year's out. They'll see that.' "'No, he'll never come back.' "'and I'm not sure as I should ever wish him to come back, "'if I could but know what was gone with him. "'You see, sir, though I were sore set again him, "'I shouldn't like harm to happen him. "'There is something behind all this that I do not understand. "'Can thee tell me what it is? "'I must, sir, if you're to help me with your counsel, "'and I came up here to ask for it.' "'Another long pause, during which Jeremiah made a feint "'of playing with the child, "'who danced and shouted with tantalized impatience.' at not being able to obtain possession of the seal, and at length stretched out her soft round little arms to go to the owner of the coveted possession. Surprise at this action roused Sylvia, and she made some comment upon it. I never knew her to go to any one afore. I hope she'll not be troublesome to you, sir. The old man, who had often longed for a child of his own in days gone by, was highly pleased by this mark of baby's confidence, and almost forgot in trying to strengthen her regard by all the winning wiles in his power, how her poor mother was still lingering over some painful story which she could not bring herself to tell. "'I'm afeard of speaking wrong again any one, sir, and mother was so fond of Philip, but he kept something from me, as would have made me a different woman, and someone else happen a different man. I would troth plighted with Kinraid the specksioneer, him as was cousin to the cornies on Mossbrow, and comed back lieutenant in Tenevi last Tuesday three weeks, after every one had thought him dead and gone these three years. She paused. Well, said Jeremiah with interest, although his attention appeared to be divided between the mother's story and the eager playfulness of the baby on his knee. Philip knew he were alive. He'd seen him taken by to press gang, and Charlie had sent a message to me by Philip. Her white face was reddening her eyes flashing at this point of her story. And he never told me a word on it, not when he saw me like to break my heart in thinking as Kinraid were dead. He kept it all to himself, and watched me cry, and never said a word to comfort me with the truth. It would have been a great comfort, sir, only to have had his message, if I'd never have been to see him again. But Philip never let on to any one, as I ever heard on, that he'd seen Charlie that morning as to press gang took him. You know about feyther's death, and how friendless mother and me was left, and so I married him, for he were a good friend to us then, and I were dazed like with sorrow, and could see naught else to do for mother. He were all as very tender and good to her, for sure. Again a long pause of silent recollection, broken by one or two deep sighs. If I go on, sir, now, I mun ask you to promise, as you'll never tell. I do so need someone to tell me what I ought to do, and I were led here like, else I would have died with it all within my teeth. You'll promise, sir. Jeremiah Foster looked in her face, and seeing the wistful eager look, he was touched almost against his judgment, into giving the promise required. She went on. Upon a Tuesday morning three weeks ago, 
I think, though for to matter a time it might have been three years, Kinraid come home, come back for to claim me as his wife, and I were wed to Philip. I met him in to road at first, and I couldn't tell him there. He followed me into to house, Philip's house, sir, behind a shop, and somehow I told him all how I were a wedded wife to another. Then he up and said I'd a false heart, me false, sir, as had eaten my daily bread in bitterness, and had wept a nights through, all for sorrow and mourning for his death. Then he said as Philip knowed all the time he were alive and coming back for me, and I couldn't believe it, and I called Philip, and he come, and all that Charlie had said were true, and yet I were Philip's wife, so I took a mighty oath, and I said as I'd never hold Philip to be my lawful husband again, nor ever forgive him for the evil he wrought us, but hold him as a stranger, and one as had done me a heavy wrong. She stopped speaking. Her story seemed to her to end there, but her listener said, after a pause, It were a cruel wrong, I grant thee that, but thy oath were a sin, and thy words were evil, my poor lass. What happened next? I don't justly remember, said she wearily. Kinraid went away, and mother cried out, and I went to her. She were asleep, I thought, so I lay down by her, to wish I were dead, and to think on what would come on my child if I died, and Philip came in softly, and I made as if I were asleep, and that's to very last as I've ever seen or heard of him. Jeremiah Foster groaned as she ended her story. Then he pulled himself up and said in a cheerful tone of voice, He'll come back, Sylvia Hepburn. He'll think better of it, never fear. I fear his coming back, said she. That's what I'm feared on. I would wish as I knew on his well-doing in some other place, but him and me can never live together again. Nay, pleaded Jeremiah, thee art sorry what thee said. Thee were sore put about, or thee wouldn't have said it. He was trying to be a peacemaker and to heal over conjugal differences, but he did not go deep enough. I'm not sorry, said she slowly. I were too deeply wrong to be put about. That would go off with a night's sleep. It's only the thought of mother. She's dead and happy and knows not of all this, I trust. It comes between me and hating Philip. I'm not sorry for what I said. Jeremiah had never met with anyone so frank and undisguised in expressions of wrong feeling, and he scarcely knew what to say. He looked extremely grieved, and not a little shocked. So pretty and delicate a young creature to use such strong, relentless language. She seemed to read his thoughts, for she made answer to them. I dare say you think I'm very wicked, sir, not to be sorry. Perhaps I am. I can't think of that, for remembering how I've suffered. And he knew how miserable I was, and might have cleared my misery away with a word, and he held his peace, and now it's too late. I'm sick of men and their cruel, deceitful ways. I wish I were dead. She was crying before she had ended this speech, and seeing her tears, the child began to cry too, stretching out its little arms to go back to its mother. The hard, stony look on her face melted away into the softest, tenderest love as she clasped the little one to her and tried to soothe its frightened sobs. A bright thought came into the old man's mind. He had been taking a complete dislike to her, till her pretty way with her baby showed him that she had a heart of flesh within her. Poor little one, said he, thy mother had need love thee, for she's deprived thee of thy father's love. Thou art halfway to being an orphan, yet I cannot call thee one of the fatherless to whom God will be a father. Thou art a desolate baby, thou mayst well cry, thine earthly parents have forsaken thee and I know not if the Lord will take thee up. Sylvia looked up at him affrighted, 
holding her baby tighter to her she exclaimed don't speak so sir it's cursing sir i haven't forsaken her oh sir those are awful sayings thee has sworn never to forgive thy husband nor to live with him again dost thee know that by the law of the land he may claim his child and then thou wilt have to forsake it or to be forsworn poor little maiden continued he once more luring the baby to him with the temptation of the watch and chain sylvia thought for a while before speaking then she said i cannot tell what ways to take whilst i think my head is crazed it were a cruel turn he did me it was i couldn't have thought him guilty of such baseness this acquiescence which was perfectly honest on jeremiah's part almost took sylvia by surprise why might she not hate one who had been both cruel and base in his treatment of her and yet she recoiled from the application of such hard terms by another to philip by a cool judging and indifferent person as she esteemed jeremiah to be from some inscrutable turn in her thoughts she began to defend him or at least to palliate the harsh judgment which she herself had been the first to pronounce he were so tender to mother she were dearly fond on him he never spared aught he could do for her else i would never have married him he was a good and kind-hearted lad from the time he was fifteen and i never found him out in any falsehood no more did my brother but it were all the same as a lie said sylvia swiftly changing her ground to leave me to think as charlie were dead when he knowed all to time he were alive it was it was a self-seeking lie putting thee to pain to get his own ends and the end of it has been that he is driven forth like cain i never told him to go sir but thy words sent him forth sylvia i cannot unsay them sir and i believe as i should say them again but she said this as one who rather hopes for a contradiction all jeremiah replied however was poor wee child in a pitiful tone addressed to the baby sylvia's eyes filled with tears oh sir i'll do anything as ever you can tell me for her that's what i came for to ask you i know i may not stay there and philip gone away and i do not know what to do and i'll do aught only i must keep her with me whatever can i do sir jeremiah thought it over for a minute or two then he replied i must have time to think i must talk it over with brother john but you've given me your word sir exclaimed she i have given thee my word never to tell any one of what has passed between thee and thy husband but i must take counsel with my brother as to what is to be done with thee and thy child now that thy husband has left the shop this was said so gravely as almost to be a reproach and he got up as a sign that the interview was ended he gave the baby back to its mother but not without a solemn blessing so solemn that to sylvia's superstitious and excited mind it undid the terrors of what she had esteemed to be a curse the lord bless thee and keep thee the lord make his face to shine upon thee all the way down the hillside sylvia kept kissing the child and whispering to its unconscious ears i'll love thee for both my treasure i will i'll hap thee round with my love so as thou shalt never need a feathers. End of chapter thirty six